2: and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia?
0: Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking.
2: Just dumbstruck.
1: I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank... Uh, that fell down under. I don't think. I know.
2: I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern down. the office. Stick
0: in your eyes!
2: You're a classic spice invader.
0: A social climbing sycophant! He needs a mirror. I mean <laughs>
2: Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Mark Kenny here with Democracy Sausage, which comes each week from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute, the School of Politics and International Relations, and from Policy Forum at the Crawford School of Public Policy. The world's in a perilous place, it seems, with war in Europe, an ongoing pandemic, and climate-related disasters increasing in frequency, as we know all too well. While the new Labor government has attempted to inject a measure of positivity into Australia's international relations... It's clear that America, Australia's closest strategic ally, continues to turn in on itself. The isolationism and toxic division of the Trump administration seems to still be shaping US domestic politics and limiting American prestige and influence globally. As the January 6th Congressional Inquiry wends on, Trump's intense politicisation of the Supreme Court is unveiling its full horror, leading to profound divisions and fears of a serious internal conflict, some even, say, civil war or some sort of equivalent. That's our focus this week, and to do that, I'm joined by the perspicacious Dr. Maria Teflaga, as always, from the School of Politics and International Relations. Hi, Maria.
0: Hello, Mark. How are you?
2: I'm well. I'm perhaps a bit better than you are. A bit of a lurgy there we can all hear in your voice. I hope that uh, hope you make it through. understand if you don't.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Mark. I'll be okay.
2: And it's welcome back to Dr. Jennifer Hunt, formerly of ANU and now a lecturer in security studies at Macquarie University. Jennifer, welcome back. Thank you. Let's go to SCOTUS, as it's often called, the Supreme Court of the United States, to uh, to sort of st- start off our discussion, because that's an area of expertise of yours. Um, do you agree with my characterization that, that Trump's uh, pernicious influence um, is only now starting to find its full expression?
1: Well, the appointment of Supreme Court justices is one of the longest legacies of a president. And many people warned about this in 2016, that Roe was on the chopping block and potentially marriage equality, um and, and that has proven prescient.
2: Uh, and when, when you say 2016, this was even before the election, wasn't it? Because Trump was indicating before he was elected that he was going to make appointments to the Supreme Court that were consistent with his values.
1: Absolutely. And in the debates, he said that women who get abortion should be punished.
2: Mm, and that's what they're doing now. <laughs>
1: exactly. So this is the first full term of that 6-3 supermajority now. And remember, the two—the last two appointments from the Trump administration had no qualifications for this. They had never argued a case, and they now have lifetime appointments on this court and possibly a conservative supermajority until at least 2050.
2: So let's go to that. Uh, wh- who are these justices, the ones you just referred to?
1: So we had Amy Comey Barrett, who was appointed... In the middle of the election, 60 million Americans had already voted by the time her name was put forward, even though, of course, Obama uh, was not allowed to have a seat for a full year. That was held over by Mitch McConnell. That's
2: right. And the argument then was that there there was a presidential uh, changeover about to happen. and therefore, And that was a year away, as you say. And the, the, the Republicans argued that it was inappropriate for the outgoing president to appoint any uh, any Supreme Court justices? That's justice. right, but it was
1: somehow appropriate to appoint them after voting had already begun.
2: Yeah, in Trump's case, yeah.
1: And then, of course, before that was Brett Kavanaugh. Neither, of course, of them had ever argued a case before, right. so not not particularly well qualified for a lifetime appointment on this court.
2: No, and also notably in their fifties. Right? Yes, so quite young with a long potential presence on the on the Supreme Court. Absolutely, and I suppose for. Australian is, uh, and that's most of our audience, although we have people listening around the world, but and, and this would be the case for many people in other countries as well. Just the idea of such nakedly political appointments uh, to the judici- you know, Supreme Court, to the, to the top rung of the judiciary seems kind of bizarre.
1: Absolutely. And all tilted toward the one case that we've seen decided, Roe v. Wade. And those ramifications are going to be immense. We've already had a 10-year-old incest victim that couldn't get health care in her state and had to travel for it. You've had ectopic pregnancies that are going to risk the lives uh, of women and are, of course, completely non-viable. And with other birth defects, anencephaly, you know, other conditions that are incompatible with life, the woman's life will be sacrificed or she'll be criminalized. in effect, every pregnancy in America is a high-risk pregnancy now.
2: Yeah. Maria, any thoughts on this in terms of, uh, you know, as I say, that sort of Australian incredulity really at the uh, – you know, we, we, we have appointments made to our judiciary which are also political, and this is a point you've made before, Jennifer, when we've spoken about this, that, um, you know, governments make appointments to the High Court, for example, but it is nowhere near as partisan as this. As this. Uh, um, Maria – what, what what are your thoughts on this?
0: Um, so I guess it. I think some of the the most interesting dimensions around this, from I guess from an Australian perspective, is because we don't have a bill of rights, our relationship to our court is quite uh, different. Um, uh, you know, ultimately, we don't look to the courts to resolve. A lot of moral politics issues because there's not really the same mechanisms or or tool sets available to courts that you see in places where you do have bills of rights, like the United States or Canada, um, for example, when they introduced their charter in the in the 1980s. Um, I'm not saying that this is like necessarily a better model or anything like that, but it does. It does mean that legislatures have had to grapple with these issues in Australia and abortion being a sort of state-based one. But it it also means that change is um, quite patchy across the country, right? Like um, there are still states uh, where um, abortion has only been decriminalised, for for example. It's, I think, the majority of Australian states. Um, We do have uneven access to abortion in terms of like the ability to just simply get a procedure. Um, And it's not listed on Medicare, which is kind of shocking if you think about it, uh, given how uh, essential it is. Uh, And I think the other major difference that I think a lot of Australians sort of struggle to understand is that uh, support for abortion in australia is uh well over 60% I, I think the last figures have it over 70% at least so it's it's a, a super majority whereas in the united states it's sort of um 48 48 with two undecided in the in the middle basically um which which explains why uh it is an ongoing issue in in your country um Jennifer, but yeah, I mean, as someone looking from afar it it is um well it's it's quite shocking and I think the thing that was also sort of quite shocking to me um was not just the decision on on Roe v Wade, but about um like a few days later uh the there was that ruling restricting the Ability of the Environmental Protection Agency to, um, you know, have a broader remit um, than just looking at air pollution, I believe, which has all kinds of implications for uh, climate change as well. And so, uh, I guess when you've got a political system that's about 270 years old and a supermajority of judges who believe that you should sort of go back to whatever the intentions of people 270 years ago, it, it is kind of, and an a situation where lots of political issues are now resolved ultimately in the courts because the political system can't manage them. It is worrying.
2: It is. And and Jennifer, Maria raises a couple of points there that are quite interesting, I think. One is the the, the point, reminding us the point that the, the, the court is going back to its own previous ruling in this case uh, on, on Roe v. Wade, right? So it's actually revisiting a decision and overturning a precedent that's already established, which is actually quite uncommon.
1: Yes, very common. The court has normally expanded rights. And yeah. of course, there are other later uh, rulings that are built on Roe v. Wade's precedent.
2: Yeah, so essentially, just determining that the court had it wrong fifty years ago, when it uh, when a majority of the judges were appointed by Richard Nixon, as I understand, when when the original decision was made in Roe v. Wade, um, and and when things were as we now know, because we have the uh, the value of so much history since, we now know that what we thought, what people thought was a hyperpartisan court then, was nothing compared to to you know, the way politics have gone in, in the United States and the way these appointments have gone, the way the court now conducts itself. The other interesting point, though, that uh, Maria touched on was, was that um, at one level, all the all that the Supreme Court has done, looking at, again, through Australian eyes, is return the US to a situation that actually obtains in Australia now, which is that the, the, the federal government doesn't decide these things and can't pass laws in relation to it, the state's, make those decisions themselves. That's kind of misleading, isn't it? Because some it of
1: those states already had trigger laws in effect in which the voters have no say at this point whether... But, but, but the know, court's
2: really just deciding whether the whether the federal government, uh, whether the constitution in the case of Roe v. Wade has this protection in it or it doesn't. It's sort of a, a, a jurisprudential or legal question.
1: Indeed. But again, those trigger laws are now enforcing 1862 Era laws in some of these states,
0: right? Which is remarkable, right? I mean, before women yeah. could vote. In, <laughs> indeed, indeed. I mean, and as there was I, a civil as war. I, yeah, as I understand it, um, the, the abortion as, a, as an issue in the United States um, wasn't as Always as polarized um, as it is now, and that it was sort of a, a tactic used by some elements on the on the right to mobilize, um, you know, groups of voters that were perhaps like less politically um, engaged, and and this is sort of the um, the end game of that, you know, where you've got these all of these states essentially pushing through laws to create test cases right that that you know which is we now see Roan V. Wade overturned or having like um, those trigger laws as you just mentioned on on the books sort of um, ready to to go. Um, and I guess it it um, it does sort of it kind of to, to me it sort of points to like a failure of, of politics right to, like that's the whole reason we have parliaments. It's to sort of try to resolve these difficult issues um, on the basis of, you know, citizens, um, you know, preferences and um, discourse. And um, I guess I think it is as, as an outsider, right? You know, it, to, to me, it sort of says that. Something needs to be done about the institutional settings because it's too dangerous to allow nine people to essentially, who have lifetime appointments and are, appoint, are now appointed in an entirely partisan and politicised process, to have these decisions of life and death over, you know, 200 million women in the United States, um, let alone everyone Everyone else, like, I have no idea how you fix that. But to me, it's like it's a it's a it speaks to a bigger set of problems than
1: just just the court. Of course. And de called states laboratories of democracy. The federal government was there to underwrite minimum standards. Right. You can every state can have a minimum wage that is above the standard, but they can't go below it.
2: Right. So there has yeah. to be some
1: modicum <laughs> of standards. And that's what the federal government is. But what we have now at the state level are laboratories of autocracy. Where in this suite of decisions that the Supreme Court has made, they have now eroded the separation of church and state. They've eroded the enforcement of Miranda warnings. They've, uh, you know, eliminated the ability to sue violent border guards. You already mentioned the EPA's authority to regulate uh, greenhouse gases at power plants. That's gone. Um, They've already dismantled the Voting Rights Act in 2013, this very same court. But now there's a case pending that could see. Republican legislatures at the state level overturn the will of the people to declare whomever they want the victor of elections. Mm. So I think just seeing that one case in isolation
0: exactly. misses
1: the point of this of this court. But you're you're correct. This was largely seen to be a Catholic issue at the time. Some of these laws were written. Um, I remember going back to the Southern Baptist Convention. I grew up Baptist and reading the conventions from the 1970s where they. They recognized and applauded the Roe v. Wade decision because women were dying. And I think exactly. anyone who hasn't grown up ever, you know, under Roe v. Wade is about to get an education uh, in, in human reproductive biology about how this mm-hmm. happens and how frequently this happens. Um, but you also see that same composition in the court. You have a composition of the court that is not reflective of the United States, uh, especially in terms of religious affiliation, you know, 6-3 Catholic court. Um, and. I think these cases are only going to continue, starting with that uh, North Carolina voting case, which would see the U.S. election severely challenged uh, moving forward.
2: Just sticking, I want to come back to that in a sec. But just sticking with the Roe v. Wade for a moment, um, and 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 the issue, I suppose, more more specifically, uh, and and its political framing um, is. How much of this? How much of the, in in your judgment, how much of the position on abortion is really symbolic as an issue for the right in America? That is, it's because plainly we can see people who are both pro life and pro gun have a glaring contradiction in their in their in their political position. Uh, I, th- I think it was Arianna Huffington or someone like that tweeted. Uh, the Supreme Court had, in, in in the same week, framed its its argument that life begins at conception and ends in a mass shooting. You know, oh. gra- graphic and shocking though that is, that appeared to be
1: absolutely. Yeah. And of course, guns are the leading cause of death for children in the United States. Yeah, now. which is astonishing.
2: I mean, in, in, in it, this is a supposedly you know the apex country, f- apex first world country, and the leading cause of cause of death for children is guns.
1: Absolutely. And not and not, it's not those, civilized. Not the muskets, you know, of the <laughs> <laughs> originalists. Yeah. And the you know, muskets, AR-
2: of course, were the guns that were sort of around at the time Absolutely. that the right to bear arms was yeah, established. For the
1: purposes of a well regulated militia. You know, yeah. be sure to read the entirety of the Second Amendment. Yeah. yeah. But you know, an AR fifteen, the type of damage that does, they were having to identify some of those school children in Texas by DNA evidence.
2: It's just Jesus. You know, it's unfathomable. Yeah.
1: We just had a mass shooting on July fourth. Yeah, it's it's a we, daily we, occurrence Which is now. this
2: morning our time? Yeah, yes. as as we record this, yeah, we you know. So it's we wake clearly up not an it...
1: issue of doors. It was outside the parade. Uh, What's that? It's clearly not an issue of doors. That was the Republican.
2: Oh, the doors uh, thing. Yeah. yeah, the doors about yeah, schools. Yeah, exactly.
1: I yeah. need to turn them into prisons.
0: Well, I mean, also like fires are also a life-threatening issue, and one door in and out wouldn't like this this is insane like i can't believe we're even talking about this this is stupid
2: it was astonishingly stupid um but that's what they're reduced to to because if if because if your position if your bottom line is that you are going to defend something that is absolutely indefensible on every measure then it no no arguments too ridiculous to absolutely. to support but, but i
1: think you're right it's symbolic because they don't actually don't understand what life will be like under this um but it has also been the only focal point that the entire party can agree on for as long as I can remember. And and they are taught that abortion is murder. There's no sophistication or nuance in their understanding of biology. And it means that miscarriages are now essentially manslaughter and they will be criminalized and investigated as such. Hmm. That's insane.
2: Let's take a quick break there and be back in just a moment.
0: or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts.
2: Welcome back. Now, I'm going to raise something that's, uh, you know, I do with some trepidation because it's, a, it's an unpleasant prospect, but I, I wonder what your, I'll get both of your opinions on this, um, what the prospect is for, I mean, given that we see these mass shootings all the time, uh, they are very, very frequent occurrence now, We know right-wing political extremism is a growing problem in a lot of places in the U.S., particularly. Uh, Nut jobs could now be armed not just with an AR-15 or whatever you call it. I'm not an expert on arms, as you can tell, Um, uh, but they've got the Bible as well, and now they've got the Constitution, as they say, right? Um, You know, in this, uh, in the wake of this Roe v. Wade overturn. Is there a danger that we are now going to see to those corporations who came out very quickly and said any of our employees who are uh, who, who find themselves in need of a termination can go to pro-choice states and we will pay for them? Is there a danger that those sorts of corporations who are in, in pro-life states, um, as they call themselves, uh, could face direct action by extremists?
1: I think so. I mean anti-abortion extremism was already designated as sort of a radical group on the FBI, you know. That's lists. right. And we and we
2: know that clinics had been attacked <laughs> in the past and people have been killed and there've been all kinds of tragedies.
1: And we know that the Supreme Court had also overturned any barriers around those facilities and their healthcare facilities. They don't just do abortions, they do healthcare screenings, they do cancer screenings, they do birth control. And so they had overturned any safe zone for women trans, you know, uh, moving through that space. And I think you will see groups that feel emboldened now and with the the loosening of gun control. Remember, several states Mm. have enacted permitless carry now. You need no education, no permit, no license, no training, no waiting to procure these tactical battlefield weapons. And I think that they will be looking for an opportunity to use them.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think it's really important that you call them tactical battlefield weapons, right? Because that is what we're talking about here, right? Like, um, I have a really prov- provocative question for you, Jennifer. I mean, um, whenever whenever anyone brings up the United States, uh, like if I'm at a barbecue or, or, or whatever, like, it's, it's not long before people start talking about whether or not the United States will actually be a state in 10 or 15 years. Um, uh, Someone commented to me the other day that you've sort of, with the Roe v. Wade decision, you've now got a fundamental question of the right to life that is treated in like drastically different ways um, in different jurisdictions across the country. I mean, I don't know. uh, for the is first time so-
2: since slavery, really?
0: Yes, yeah. exactly. Exactly. That was exactly the context in which the point was made. Um,
1: you know, is this hyperbole? No, I think. <laughs> I think. Sadly, if you look at the indicators of a of a failing state, uh, the U.S. ticks some fairly dangerous boxes, and it's it's not um, it's it's nowhere more dangerous than to women. Um, I've had lots mm. of conversations. With people in the United States about where to send their children to school, uh, to college, uh, and to university, mm. and this being a key consideration, will they see really receive medical care um, when it's required, or will some rapist in that state decide they want to select the mother of their children?
2: <sighs> what a an outrageous proposition!
0: What do you think the impact will will be on on the midterms? I mean, like, I mean, realistically. What can the federal government really do to address this? I mean, what can the political system do apart from, um, you know, hope that a justice passes away so they can be replaced? I mean, I think, I think, I think our audience would, would if you do under, know, know that answer. Like that would be helpful.
2: Yeah, and just before we go to that, I mean, can I add just one other aspect to that question? and That is. The, the, the possibility, however faint, of expanding the Supreme Court, which was one of the options that was being talked about for a while, which could change the balance. So on top of what Maria was asking. Yeah,
1: you. absolutely. So I think that's probably the easiest one to start with. Uh, there is no mention of the number of justices in the Constitution, in the sacred document. It has been uh, fewer. It's been more. It's currently nine because there were nine district courts, nine circuit courts, uh, when they were when they were developing that number, we have now thirteen circuit courts in the United States, not nine. So I think that's an excellent starting point for a rationale. Um, during the New Deal, FDR threatened to expand the court if they didn't uh, get into line with some of his progressive measures, and so that that wasn't a necessary step that had to be taken in the end. I'm not sure that that Biden has that sort of uh, you know intimidation factor that FDR had. The
2: Kahuna's for it. <laughs>
1: Um but I do think expanding, rebalancing the court is an increasingly popular uh popular option.
2: But that would just be seen for the political act it, it was, wouldn't it? By the right. They would see it as hang on, we've we, we we won the presidency, we filled the vacancies, we we operated as the rules allowed and you are now just rigging the rules in your favour, which is, you know. Descent into more chaos.
1: Well, if Mitch McConnell says that that would be rich, because he obviously didn't abide by the rules by keeping that seat open in the first place for a year in keeping 400 pieces of legislation that had been passed by the House weren't even given a hearing in the Senate. So if we want to talk about rules and norms, I would have to say that the Republican Party has not found itself, you know, considered itself bound by those for quite a time.
2: Nor reason. I mean, that's a reasoned argument. That will... Be water off a duck's back, right?
1: I mean,
0: incredibly, this sort of sounds like the House of Lords, right? Um, in the United Kingdom, right? The House of the aristocracy, and and the way that ultimately the Commons asserted its ability, or its control, or its right, controls the wrong word, its dominance in the political system was was to stare down the Lords and 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 sometimes to pack it, right? Um, yeah, like I, I guess I guess um, I know I like to make this point a lot, but it really does sort of show that um, the the machinery of government in the United States really is from another kind of time, like its logics are, are kind of very different to, I guess, how you would design a democratic state today if you were starting afresh.
1: Yeah. It's true. It's a very aged document. This is 1789. It was quite progressive for its time. And we have amended it exactly. several times to uh, you know, accommodate Indeed. modern circumstances. But I think it's the interpretation that has proven itself dangerous by partisans. Yeah. Not the Constitution's precisely. fault.
2: Precisely. But it's trapped by this document in a sense because it, 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 it delimits what is able to be done. But as you say, it's a progressive document at its time. It's able to be interpreted and reinterpreted, as we've seen. Uh, but that becomes an, a, a, a very political exercise. And that's now the battleground all the time,
1: isn't it? Absolutely.
2: How about the Republican Party it, itself, the GOP? Um, it seems to be a party that is in rapid descent from anything approximating the, the Democratic Institution that it that it used to be that it's been at its best anyway.
1: Yes, Norm um, Ornstein called it an insurgent outlier that it's unpersuaded by facts and evidence and doesn't recognize the authority of any opposing party to govern. Right. And that was ten years ago.
2: Right. <laughs> 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 and you didn't even read that; you just you just said that just rolled off the top <laughs> because yes, and it's it's um. It's as cogent an explanation as I think there is. But as you say, that was 10 years ago, and that's become even more pressing since. Can I just read the lead uh, from a New York Post article? Um, and this uh, this is how it goes. Disgraced former Missouri governor and GOP Senate candidate Eric Greitens – is that his correct pronunciation? Yes. Yeah. Released a wild ad Monday calling on primary voters to order a, quote, rhino. that is R-I-N-O, Hunting permit in an attack on Republicans known for breaking with former President Donald Trump. So he was clearly targeting people like Liz Cheney, who mm-hmm. are now seen as you know figures of great hatred on the on the religious right. Mm, disloyal, on the right? Yeah, as disloyal as a traitor, everything else. Um, and and pretty clearly the imagery in that ad where he's holding a shotgun, he's 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 flanked by men in fatigues mm-hmm. uh, holding assault weapons um it, this is this is a Repu- this is a mainstream candidate i mean transpose these conditions to australia it is unthinkable right that's the absolutely the, the, the idea that this guy is effectively calling to arms for for the, for the purpose of getting a permit so you can assassinate republicans people who are rhino republican in name only because they are what doing the bidding of the left or whatever it is
1: absolutely and he's encouraging people with that, you know, the, mm. to get your own hunting license, he is giving them permission. Yeah. And, you know, from the Australian perspective, I teach research methods in in security studies and looking at, you know, visual data. Campaign ads are a great example of, of the kinds of narratives and and visuals and, and other sorts of data that we can glean and themes we can glean uh, from visual data. So in my class, I pull up three political campaign ads from the United States that I'm sure they haven't seen. I assume they haven't seen. Um, but before I do so, I have them make a list. What do you expect to see in a political ad? What do you expect to see from someone who's vying for leadership? And they always come up, these are postcards, come up, you know, judgment, policies, temperament, credentials, right? Mm. But what they get when I show them these ads of Republicans is them blowing up a car marked with the word socialism. And they're just flabbergasted. They're like, this cannot be real. I'm like, all of those people were elected. These aren't French candidates. These mm. are all elected officials. Mm. And this is the type of narrative and discourse and sort of violent imagery that is becoming increasingly mainstream in the Republican Party.
0: I mean, what do they want? What's their ideal state look like?
1: They do not consider anyone else real Americans. They're very clear about that. So they call themselves patriots because they truly believe it, that they are the only... Legitimate voice of the country, and thus their, opi- uh, their opinions and power and policies must be upheld, regardless of whether they constitute the majority or the minority. And they are definitely the minority.
2: Do you see any of these tendencies creeping into Australia? I mean, I- I'll give you an example, and it's a, um, it's a bit of a sensitive one because I don't want to appear to in any way be um, uh, devaluing the feelings of the people that were being expressed here, nor the loss that they felt, but. When the Labor Senator Kimberley Kitching died of a heart attack, um, there was an outpouring of grief across the political aisle, and a number of people described her straight up as a patriot at the time. And it struck me as an odd thing to say, because it's almost like in contradistinction other people aren't, which felt to me like a, a tendency you see in American politics a bit, and which goes to the point you were just making about who are the real Americans and who aren't. And there are, of course, other things. That's just a linguistic one, I suppose. But there are lots of other sort of tendencies we've seen maybe even in Clive Palmer's ads, although I must admit when you were talking about um, you know blowing up cars with socialism written on them or or the the ad uh, that I was just talking about, um, it's a long way from risible photos of Craig Kelly with our next PM written underneath it. (laughs) (laughs) That was just comic. (laughs) A waste of money, but good for media companies. He made a lot of money out of it, um, but yeah. But so, do, do you see any of these uh, tendencies in in Australian politics or in Western other Western countries? I
1: tend to notice the narratives that creep in around, like you said, patriotism or tyranny. Uh, I've heard a few mentions of that in the anti-vax community. This, is, yeah, yeah, you know, medical tyranny, and. Also, I saw various attempts under the Scott Morrison government to introduce this uh, exalted position of the military. He would do the welcome to country and then I'd like to thank our troops. That's very American. Yes, very good point. Uh, I
2: felt that too. You
1: you haven't been in an American airport until the the troops have been thanked every half hour on the half hour uh, over the loud speaker so and,
2: and Trump had lots of military people in his administration didn't he for a while there's you know there several generals you know sort of kicking around the west wing
1: absolutely well they're known for being quite hierarchical they tend to listen mm. uh, when their commander-in-chief says something or so throws I'd, lunch at them <laughs> exactly um, but but military personnel retired or uh, you know non-active are overrepresented in representative government in the United States at every level. There seem to be leaders, there seem to be you know, good judgment, uh, courage under fire, that mm. sort of thing. They have a very high reputation. In fact, according to the Pew survey, I think I last looked at this in 2016, it was the only cohort in which the American has high trust across the partisan spectrum. There is no other group <laughs> that has that kind of, not the courts, not law enforcement, and definitely not each other.
2: It's not like that here, is it, Maria?
0: <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean... Look, I do think that there are always, and I think the internet has sort of certainly helped, right? Like, you know, do you remember when Old Parliament House was burnt down? Well, some of the arguments around that were like this sort of fringe sovereign citizens movement, right? And these were left-wing people who burnt down um, the entranceway to, to Old Parliament House, essentially um, importing a crazy idea from um, the sort of uh, netherworld of the of the, um sort of the American fringe around, um, you know, basically declaring sovereignty within yourself as a way of rejecting the control of the sovereignty of the state. Anyway, that's really not how that
1: works. (laughs) The living uh, soul. The living soul.
0: uh, Yeah, exactly. But I do think this conversation around patriotism is really interesting um, in Australia. Like, yes, you know, the coalition very much, like since Abbott was elected, like if you recall, like he really made a thing about, Flags, mm. um, having flags, and being depicted with flags, and as time went on, as his prime ministership got into more and more trouble, more and more pla- flags, kind of. Um, I think it got appeared. to nine was, at one stage. <laughs> yeah, it was a linear relationship, you know, um, <laughs> um, and um, and I and I, and and we've certainly seen like the militarization of lots of uh, policy responses under the Morrison government. And if you recall, one of the things he said, one of his few regrets was that he he didn't bring the military in earlier to manage the vaccine rollout. Not that he uh, regretted uh, trying to politicise the rollout by using the bits of government he controlled so he could take credit rather than allowing the states to do what they're actually good at which is running health systems right so yeah and you know and and like the governor general is more often than not a military uh, figure these days um you know so there's definitely a sort of veneration around that um from the coalition you know if you look at the Brereton report like that was that was that was a difficult issue for the government to kind of um manage but um and I think that kind of goes hand in hand with, um, you know, labour until very, very recently has sort of seeded pa- like the like patriotism um, to the right and had done so for for a generation, which which is kind of incredible because you know I mean like where did labour kind of start like you know Australia for the working man, Australia for the white man, um, you know Australia for Australians, um, and and. And so, and I guess because we've had these social reckonings around uh, rights movements um, for women, for Indigenous people, for, for, you know, non heterosexual people, so much of what the left has had to sort of say about the Australian state for, I don't know, a good 50 years has been one of, you know, critique, right? Critique outside of like the classical kind of class, material, political kind of critique of the Australian state. And um, and so, yeah, Labor has sort of kind of ceded that ground. But I, I actually think it's really interesting that a lot of politicians within Labor on both from both the left and right factions are kind of saying that we need to reclaim the politics of patriotism um, and we need to find like a positive way of talking about um, Australia because it is kind of alienating. And whilst I do think that we do import many cross currents from the United States, I I do have hope that we don't we won't we won't have quite the same outcome. Essentially for two reasons. One is we're not an empire and the United States is. And that sort of discussion of the military like if you look at all empires they all kind of do this like in their own kind of way um you know the united kingdom still has like a lot of overhangs around this like there's that queen's conference concert every year with the military for example like that's you know that's like one thing like the way russia um celebrates its um military like it's just on a different scale to what we we do here so we don't have that kind of empire dimension and two um Yeah, you know, we could be getting to a sort of situation where our leading left-wing parties are are finding a new way to sort of celebrate the nation and I think the voice and the stuff around the Uluru Statement is one pathway down that avenue. So it would be really interesting to kind of see
2: well that's a really interesting point actually and I guess we'll have to look at that in in another podcast it, it, quite separately because it deserves uh it deserves attention all on its own of course as a question and all of the issues around that and uh you know whether it can be successfully progressed and where the greens fit in and a whole range of, of questions come up about that just uh stick it going back to the um to the to the GOP for 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 a bit before we conclude um I'm just wondering whether the i mean because there's a question about whether the union can survive the current tensions that it has um, and there's also obviously a subsidiary question but an important one about whether the G o p can survive within that because it is it is it is the both the agent or the vehicle for these uh for these tensions pulling apart at you know, straining the union itself um and as, as we've noted, I mean, no arguments seem to be too ridiculous. We had the pros- the, the reality, actually, of, of uh, General Flynn, Michael Flynn, being questioned by the aforementioned Liz Cheney. Um, and uh, I don't know if people have seen this. Uh, you can see it on Twitter and various other places. But it is astonishing because she's asking him. He's, he's sitting there with uh, – it's, it's done by video conference, Skype or whatever – and uh, she's asking him some pretty basic questions. He's got his lawyer next to him, and when she asks him, does he believe in the orderly transfer of power after an election, um, he takes the Fifth. <laughs> he takes the Fifth Amendment on that question. Does he believe um, uh, that um, the uh, the insurrection at the Capitol, the riot at the Capitol was, was, uh, was um, a good or a bad thing? He takes the Fifth uh, and several other sort of basic questions. I mean, that strikes me... If Republicans can put up with those kinds of contradictions, uh, then it raises questions. As Marie was saying before, I think you know about about um, the the kind of country the US is and Australia's alliance to it, and that raises to me the question about Australia's relationship with the US because. One of the things we always say, and I've been to the U.S. many times with prime ministers and so forth, um, you know, it, it's always stressed that we share common values. Well, do we share common values if, if if we look at Roe v. Wade or if we look at the question of the treatment of life um, in relation to guns, as we've been discussing? If we look at the commitment to democracy, which seems to be extremely tenuous in a very significant, very powerful section of American of the American community, do we share the same values? Is is it is this uh, you know in danger of coming apart?
1: Well, definitely. If there are if there's confusion about commitment to the peaceful transfer of power, a key tenet of democracy, yeah, <laughs> it's very about as fundamental. It's as it gets. very hard to see how the Republican Party moves forward with the Democratic Party or any other party uh, in the United States as a unified union. And re- I'm, I remember you know during the insurrection, which we all watched live, or the world watched live on television. Uh, although, of course, you know Susan Collins still thought it was Iran. Uh, she wrote an op-ed about that. Um,
2: she thought it was what? She thought
1: it was Iran attacking. Oh, did she? She did, and she she pinned that in her under her own name in her local newspaper when this attack happened. I assume Iran was following through on its threats. Right. Oh my God. Uh, the danger okay, so, was the danger was a little closer to home. But, but what right. stuck out to me watching it live is when they tore down the U.S. flag and replaced it with a Trump flag. Yeah,
2: which you would think you would. I mean, I hate to sort of play on words here, but you think that would be a red flag for Republicans,
1: exactly. Or the fact that they were chaining, you know, hang Mike Pence, one of their owners, they were constructing a gallows outside. Yeah. Apparently, that's beside the point. Um, you know, <laughs> um, and there's a great photo now that we have as a result of the hearings of Mike Pence reading Trump's tweet, sort of encouraging the mob while he is sort of in lockdown in the building. Mm. Um, awaiting what, what happens next, but these—I don't know if you've been following these hearings. Uh, Mark, Not but, as
2: assiduously as you, I suspect. But,
1: but you know, someone asked me what they're for, and I think they're for—they're well, for posterity. Mm. But they're also for accountability. And these people are under oath, as you mentioned, and um, and and that's why we see some of them talking out of you know both sides of their mouths mm. during December and January and February. And now saying something totally different, you know, oh, obviously there is no uh, election fraud now that I'm under oath and there are penalties attached to line. Just like you have to have evidence in a court of law, which is why Trump's 60 court cases failed. Um, Mm. But I think their commitment to democracy was already evident or lack of when the same day as the insurrection, 200 Republicans voted against certifying the results of ballots that they themselves were on. You know, it's not like in Australia where you get two pages, two different ballots, whether it's the House or the Senate. It's all on one page. Their names were right alongside the president's mm. on that list, and so if they will undermine the ba- the integrity of the ballots on which they themselves are named, I think it's a very dire forecast for upcoming elections.
0: I, I remember we had a visitor from the United States who um, is a political sociologist, and um, he presented some pretty alarming data and um, one of the things he said that has always sort of stuck with me was that some of his respondents, um, who was sort of wealthy, high-wealth individuals who, who voted Republican and they basically said that, you know, to ex- sort of explain their political views was that America was not a democracy, it was a republic. And looking at um, – some of the ways in which um, voters' rights are systematically undermined uh, across the country. Yeah, yeah, it does look like a country that actually has a pretty shaky commitment to democracy um, in a way that is really striking to Australians where, of course, we must vote and where our electoral commission is empowered and required basically to bend over backwards to make it as easy as possible.
1: Absolutely. Oh, just one last point on the hearings so we can sort of going back to the beginning of our conversation. The other sort of insight from these hearings uh, has been the link to the Supreme Court, which is what we started our conversation about, that Jenny Thomas, the wife of one of the Supreme Court, was involved in the rally in communicating with lawmakers to overturn the elections Um, And remember that her husband, Justice Thomas, was the only justice in an 8-1 decision that ruled to withhold White House documents from the January 6th committee that's hearing now.
2: Right. And, of course, he's the (laughs) uh, justice that has also raised the prospect of revisiting uh, same-sex marriage.
1: Yes, contraception. Yeah. But not, you know, Loving versus Virginia, which is uh, interracial marriage because he's in one of those. Right. Yes, indeed. But all of those cases, as you mentioned, are tied together with Roe. Under the right to privacy and the expansion of individual rights,
2: and you know the the role of religion in all of this is the pernicious role of religion in all this is uh, can't be overstated. Um, I saw I don't know how credible this dude is, but his name's Nick Fuentes, and uh, uh, he was saying he's a sort of a white Christian broadcaster, uh, and he was saying on his uh, poisonous program that. Um, what did he say? That anyone who doesn't serve Jesus Christ, and this was sort of basically said against Jews, uh, so it was an anti-Semitic comment, anyone who doesn't serve Jesus Christ should not be allowed to hold public office in the United States.
1: Yeah, Shocking. <laughs> well. Shall have no religious test. We wrote that one down too. Yeah. But um, this was on the back of uh, uh, Jewish people saying that, well, the right to abortion is part of our religious relief uh, religious beliefs right so religious freedom is religious pluralism otherwise it's just sparkling theocracy
2: exactly and beautifully put
1: so the whole <laughs> point the place was started and and so this was an attempt to undermine um the narrative that and I believe it was, it was him or someone who similarly said, well, that doesn't really matter. That's not a real religion because they don't have a pope. They don't have that centralized authority. Judaism is too fractured to be a real religion. And that is a terrifying statement.
2: Indeed, it is a terrifying statement to end on. Um, <laughs> thanks. It's been uh, wonderful having you here again, Jen. Well, thank really you. Really terrific. Um, and thank you to you, Maria, with your logi. You've made it through.
1: We'll have to talk about some good news sometimes, Mark. Yeah,
2: we will. Is there some good
1: news? Come back to me. Someone suggested on my business card, you know, Jennifer Hunt, political scientist, it should say charming and alarming. (laughs) That's
2: good. That's very good. I would go with that. I would go with that. Uh, Thank you, Maria. My pleasure. And thank you, Jennifer. And that's all for... Democracy Sausage this week. I hope you've enjoyed it or endured it. Uh, obviously, some bleak material, but also great food for thought, no
1: doubt. Right. So, we're, we're thankful to live in a country where we have voting rights, universal health care and gun control.
2: It's mm. a very good point, isn't it? I was, uh, I, should, I'm, I know I'm just extending things now, but uh, I'm just trying to... Um, yes, Robert Reich, he, he, he covered this uh, very, very beautifully in a tweet. Uh, He said, forced birth control in a country with no universal health care, no universal child care, no paid family and medical leave, one of the highest rates of maternal mortality among rich nations. This isn't about life. It's about control. Absolutely. Pretty well put. Anyway, on that uh, grim note, that's Democracy Sausage for this week. Thank you. Bye. (laughs)